I feel like this is the best waiting on hold music ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm like sitting on hold and I'm like, man, they really. Your call is important. Yeah, and I'm to like, us. man, they really put some effort into this hold music. It's really good for hold music. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where old friends and lifelong musicians break down an album from Robert Dimery's seminal work, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week we're going to be talking about Moon Safari by the band Air. Very exciting, very exciting record. And at the end of this week, after we we break down a few select tracks, we are going to officially vote on whether or not you actually must hear this before you die. Give each of our jackass individual opinions. So before we get into introducing the cast characters today, I just wanted to say I have a feeling that there's going to be two kinds of listeners to a broadcast like this. Either people who have never heard of Air, but think the title sounds kind of interesting, and people who are really, really into Air and want to listen to us discuss all the gear they used and the recording techniques and the thought process. I saw a Nord! I saw a Nord! And the many, many, many keyboards in their stage setup. <laughs> or uh, not Air. If you look at the album cover, you would think they were called Air French Band. <laughs> if anyone <laughs> caught that. <laughs> so oui. I hope we could satisfy both of those listenerships, but just so we're all kind of on the same page, because this is not the, the most well-known band in the universe Let's just drop in a little snippet of the opening track on Moon Safari. It's called La Femme d'Argent, and I think it's representative of most of what you're going to hear on this record, Moon Safari. So let's drop it in here. gotten a little taste of that seven plus minute opus i'd love to go around the room have everyone introduce themselves and give us your short tweet length review of moon safari what was your week like hey this is adam first time listening to this album and this band i love the vibe i love the style but i'm still up in the air on whether or not the ocean's 11 soundtrack i'm I'm sorry i mean moon safari demands (laughs) to be heard before you die (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I'm Alan. I liken this album. I have heard this before. Robbie turned me onto this, I think, way back in the day, as with like half the albums that we've done. Um, <laughs> but I, to me, it's like a like someone made a ham sandwich, ham and cheese on a croissant for the for the French connection. It's not bad, you know. It's a slightly fancier version of an otherwise unremarkable meal. Yeah, this is uh, this is Phil. Uh- I, th- I think it's a pretty cool record. I think it's pretty hip. I, I also would say I'm undecided on whether or not it's it's must hear. 
music, must listen music, but I think it's it's it really sets a mood, I think, in a, in a fabulous way. Excellent. It sounds like we're going to have a spirited discussion. This is Rob here, and my tweet length review is Welcome to the future. You're floating in space. <laughs> Things are grand and very relaxed. I like this podcast quite a bit because this is an example of a record that I had heard many, many, many years ago, but revisiting it and researching it has given me a lot more reasons to appreciate and like it. So I hope I introduce you, the listeners, and you, my podcast colleagues, to some of those reasons on this here podcast. So by way of background, let's just talk a little bit about Air. Well, first of all, Moon Safari is the first full-length release by French band, as Alan mentioned, Air. It was released in January of 1998. They are French, the two members of Air. They're, they're a duo in most cases, Nicolas uh, Godin and Jean-Benoit Dunkel. Uh, Nicolas Godin is the, the primary bass player, but he also plays keys and guitar all over the record, and then Jean-Benoit plays keys primarily, but they, they kind of mix it up a lot. Anyway, they're both from Versailles, which is a suburb outside of Paris. They met later in Paris, kind of in the midst of this burgeoning French electronic scene in the 90s. And if French electronic scene in the 90s tickles something in your brain, it's because Daft Punk also, of course, came yes, out of this scene. Yes, all right. Okay, thank you for the sanity check. All right. Of course. So they were, they were literally right down the block from Daft Punk, going to all the same parties. Daft Punk's first full-length release called Homework, the one that has hits like Around the World on it, uh, came out uh, the year before. And, you know, the sense I got from uh, reading re- interviews with uh, the Air band members was that this this was a vibrant scene. It was actually called, some, it was something called the French Touch scene. Uh, also called French House, but they, they called it French Touch as in we give a French touch to house. Ah, Okay. And it was a it was a varied scene. There wasn't a lot necessarily connecting it, other than it was DJs experimenting with looping old soul records or filtering those old disco record beats through various uh, synthetic filters and doing different things with it. And I'll say right off the bat that Air is pretty loosely connected style-wise, I think, to Daft Punk. But they were both kind of under this this general genre of French house and came out of that same scene. And one of the things Air was kind of responding to with this record was that Daft Punk blew up as soon as they released Homework, as soon as Around the World came out. They became superstars basically overnight. And the guys in Air kind of felt like it was a little bit of a bummer to them because they felt like that was the, the death of the scene, that now everyone was just trying to make a radio hit and trying to emulate Daft Punk. And a lot of the a lot of what was interesting and stylistically diverse about that scene in Paris at that time quickly sort of went away. So that's sort of some of the to context. To me, that, that sounds like the ultimate hipster right which which kind of matches with that that french attitude of like ugh, they totally sold out there were, there were 12 people at their show and they sold three t-shirts i'm out i don't want anything else to do with them. fair enough i'm sure there's some of that hipsterism going on but i didn't i didn't mean it in quite that way and i'm not sure if they meant it that way i don't think they were necessarily critical of daft punk but i, ah, I, I what you. i did sense is they were you know it's nostalgia right they were saying like hey before there was a clear leader in this scene and hits and tons of money flowing in based on those hits, there was a lot more stylistic diversity, which sort of inherently Uh, made it more creatively interesting, right? And it stands to reason that as soon as one person becomes popular within 
a scene, whether it's Green mm-hmm. Day's Dookie, as we discussed na- last week, where then you have a lot of emulators coming in and just trying to reproduce that. And it's not that it can't produce continued good material, but something is irrevocably changed about what's going sure. on. Sure. Right? Sure. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Green Day, because I also felt like they, while they were sort of trailblazers for a lot of those bands that came after them, like the mall punk scene, there are actually other bands, though, that feel like Green Day was the one that they were like, uh, they, they're no good anymore because they've sold out. Like if you listen to, you know, the guys like no effects have a little bit of tension with green day, because I think they were all, a lot of them were making the same kind of music, but green day was kind of the one that, you know, really like everyone latched onto. Totally. And I'm not denying some of that might exist, but I didn't get that specifically. It seems like the, the fellows in air have nothing but respect for their fellow Daft Punk, you know, the guys in Daft Punk and what they're doing and what they continue to do. I, I didn't get like shade in that sense. Just just the sense that they were purposely trying to do something that was really different from them when they set out to form this band and make this record. It was Daft Punk French? Or yes. just your Oh, I didn't realize that. For some reason I thought they were like German. Also French, that. also from Paris. Like these guys were not only going to the same clubs and the same parties, but they were literally living uh, Gadan, one of the guys in air said that, like they could literally hear Daft Punk practicing like from their apartment. <laughs> that, that's no wild. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So it was a, it was a relatively small scene in Paris at the time, you know, definitely hip, definitely cool. And, you know, some of it was that even of the reason for that scene was that electronic at the time was just thumping bass and nothing else hadn't quite yet incorporated samples and a lot of melodic components, which is something that Daft Punk and air, I think both do. And, you know, we'll just say right off the bat, I, I also, as part of the research for this, I took another listen to Daft Punk's homework and it has a lot of great qualities to it. No doubt about it, but it's very, it's very much dance music. Whereas this air record moon safari is very much not dance music. Mm-hmm. And so one of the self-described things that they were going for with moon safari and with this kind of this band concept was, let me look for the exact wording of how they, they said it, but it was, it was about the morning after clubbing, right? It was about coming down off the drugs and needing to chill out on, on a Sunday morning, something like that. Yeah, I definitely, I, I picked up on that a little bit from this album in that like, it didn't feel as, I'll, I'll use the word offensive, not that I think bands like Daft Punk or other electronic bands are offensive per se, but there's a, there's like an intensity that, sometimes rubs me the wrong way and maybe it's the whole like that like four on the floor kind of thing that you always hear in that kind of music whereas this definitely felt more like hey if i'm having someone over for dinner or if we're hanging out smoking a jay drinking a couple beers like this is a fine album to have in the background where i wouldn't say the same by any means about like daft punk yeah right (laughs) you're not chilling to daft punk right not necessarily I think one of the reasons I really enjoyed this record, both when I was younger and listening to it this week, and one of the reasons I'm going to argue for it is because there are very few things that fall into that category for me. And the other band, interestingly, for all the air nerds out there who want to dive deeper into what gear they used and how they did it and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot of material written about this record, so we'll dive into a little bit of that. But I noticed that one artist that is not mentioned as a touchstone for them but it occurs to me is very much part of their chemical makeup is Pink Floyd. They remind me a lot of Pink Floyd. Now, admittedly, they don't have guitar solos or really many vocals, 
But in terms of their ability to craft very textural, chilled out soundscapes that sound like music I want to be high to or take LSD to. Definitely Sonic Alchemy. I just don't feel like a lot of bands are even aiming for something like that. So I thought that was I thought that was really great. I like stuff like that in my life. A couple more notes on air, uh, and then we can kind of get into uh, some of the tracks. So they are often mistakenly, their name is mistakenly attributed as an acronym, but it's really something called a backronym, which I thought you guys would be excited by that term, which is when you invent an acronym backwards. Anyway, wasn't intended that way, but... Someone out there, some fan said that Air stood for Amour, Imagination, Rev, which is French for love, imagination, and dream. And But that Air commented on that later and said, nope, someone made that up. It was a really cool thing to do. I wish I could have had that idea. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're honest. I'm going to retroactively steal that. Right. <laughs> the, I always felt like the Air thing, no, you know, this is like a horrible pun as I was listening to this, and it's not intentional, but... It is befitting that I felt like there was a, a very airy kind of quality to the music itself, which I I doubt that that was intentional, but you know is it does uh, it does check out that way. Yeah, I think oh, yeah. I think they chose their name with a sound in mind. I, I do think similar maybe to Pink Floyd, it's one of these concept bands where they go, "This is what we want it to sound like." We don't have a lot of rules about what the songs are going to be like necessarily or what textures we'll use or even what instruments maybe throughout our career, but we kind of have an idea of the mood. It's mood music mm-hmm. to a certain sure. extent, yeah. right? And so I think they knew right off the bat that they wanted to use live instrumentation mixed with a lot of these like synthetic textures. So it's a very textural album as, as we've already kind of touched on. But I'd say even within that, I feel what struck out to me is that I think they have fairly tight structures. I think they justify, in most cases, the length of these songs. They don't just meander along endlessly like a lot of the other records we've we've looked at who are in love with their drum machines or whatever. No, it's it's I, I don't find it to be that at all. So you have these lush arrangements, but they were also using minimal tracks. Everything here was recorded on an 8-track, and I think that's done purposely and creates a lot of oral wow. space. Mm-hmm. In, in the music, even while you have a lot of these rich textures. I did like the, so, you know, one of the things that struck me about this, and again, I, yeah, if it hasn't been super clear, I'm very much kind of ambivalent on this album, if that's the right word. Um, but I loved, it was very obvious that it had an organic kind of feel to it with actual bass. The the bass playing on this yes, is really yes, tasty. Totally. And I, I was going to say it had, yeah, it had a band an acoustic sure. quality that that was or yeah organic is a great is a great term for it there's Wurlitzer right it, it's yeah. really yeah. difficult to tell guitar. what's a sample and what's not like very difficult I do feel like on most of this kind of music you're gonna get like synth bass or key bass or something like that whereas I love the idea of like the probably a short scale bass is kind of what it sounded like with a with a pick you know, for uh, old time's sake. But so yeah, it sounded good. So Phil just mentioned what was a sample, what was not. So that's an interesting point. They pointed out that there are no samples on this record. 100% of it is played live. And we can go into some of the details of that. But that was something that other people thought when they heard the record at first as well. They were like, oh, this must be some some mixture of the two things. No, it's 100% them sourcing all this weird vintage gear 
So I guess we should start talking about the gear, right? On the overall kind of sound of what's going on on this record, and this is taken directly from some of their interviews, and they have really nice gear breakdowns if you want to dive in. In fact, Reverb.com has a really nice long article breaking down this record and talking about the gear they use. But from the band's mouth directly, they say, the alchemy behind Moon Safari is built on a mix of Fender Rhodes and bass riffs and this thing called a Selena String Ensemble, which is a specific synthesizer that replicates string sounds and you can hear it throughout. So it's a lot of Fender Rhodes. There are, are of course, other synthesizers there. There's Wurlitzer, as we kind of talked about in the texturing. You know, there's a bunch of other, like, cool vintage synthesizers, which apparently they were obsessed. They were gearheads, like, from the jump. They were talking about how it was really hard in the pre-internet days to find vintage gear, especially in a place like France. And so this guy, Gadan was just like, he said once a month he'd buy Keyboard Magazine the first day it hit the stands and then immediately run to the phone booth and start calling the people in the classified ads to see if he could like hop on these <laughs> these weird synths that they had. That's awesome. <laughs> it's just like whatever they had. <laughs> Another thing that really, I think, helps define their sound and get some of the, the really interesting textures that you don't hear on a lot of other records is they were really big fans of plugging their keyboards into guitar pedals. And that was considered a yes. weird innovation okay. at the time. Like, there's a bunch of clavinet plugged into a wah-wah pedal. And they they plug a, another keyboard into a phaser at some point. You know, they do a lot of weird stuff like that. I didn't realize that they, did all, that they perform all this live, or at least... So you're saying when they play shows, or when they played shows, I don't know if they still do, that they were essentially able to recreate a lot of this, like, Correct. live? Yes, 100% that's in, of that's the impressive. album was done live. Now, it's only two guys in most cases in the studio. So the live setups I've seen involve a live drummer and, you know, maybe some other players. They actually, for one of the tracks, they actually ended up recording live strings at Abbey Road. I was going to ask, there is, yeah, there are strings uh, that I noted at some point in the album, and I was going to be floored if you told me that it was some synth. Good to hear that it was live strings. I'm not well, insane. Correct. But I think a lot of what they're tr- what they're going for, because they really are tone freaks or, or texture freaks, you know, and looking for something truly new, is not only would they do things like plug their keyboards into guitar pedals to get new sounds out of them, but they would do a lot of stuff where they were mixing two things that sounded kind of similar and putting them together. So, for instance, like playing the Fender Rhodes and the Wurlitzer, doubling the melody line and then mixing those together. They're doing a lot of stuff like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if they mixed synthetic strings with real strings. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, bass with synth synth bass, of mm-hmm. course, and all that kind of stuff, right? So a lot of just, like, really trying to find new sounds uh, to put out there, which is one of the things I find interesting. I almost find, like, this record is almost ASMR for me. I'm not really deep in that world, but it just has... If I found it to be great work, during work, music this week. Kind of just relaxed me right down. And made me feel very at peace. So it's funny that you mentioned the work thing because I do. So again, I'm I, you know I'm not like in love with this album necessarily, but I do enjoy that down tempo kind of music, which I think this would kind of fall into that category for things like working. If I'm in a period where I'm not doing a ton of writing, but it's just a little bit more deep work, and I need to focus on something else so you know bands like thievery corporation or bonobo or you know some of those people who fall into that the the thievery corporation came up after this 
on on the playlist, Spotify auto recommended it, started playing, and I walked around. I was like, "Who the hell is this?" I was like, "Oh shit, this is good." So yeah, I totally, totally dig that that down tempo vibe. Another yeah. one, another one, sort of in that sphere to check out is called Cinematic Orchestra. Mm, it's really yeah, they're cool, really really sweet, sort of like yeah. But I think, but but like those bands, to me, I, I didn't feel. I don't know. We, we, we can kind of talk about this in a little bit. I, I, I still consider that like to use Phil's quote, like furniture music where in some ways it's just kind of there. And, you know, I had a hard time kind of holding this up through like a critical light. I thought that's what made this week an interesting challenge for me, because I agree. This is, it was almost designed to be background music in the parlance of our podcast or of Phil. However, really listening to it intensely and looking for those kind of structures and elements and surprising and otherwise that came out of it on really good headphones at really loud volume. So while I did do a lot of my listening passively while at work, I also made a point of doing a significant amount of active listening, which I don't think I had really ever done here. And, and I'll say another thing I found there was that when you have these instrumental tracks that are down tempo, my imagination is much more free to wander and create like images almost dreamlike i I I like that feeling a lot dude that's crazy that you say that because i I joked in in the open that this was like you know oceans 11 soundtrack it has a very soundtracky vibe but in that same same thing that you just said which is my mind when when i sit and actively listen the visuals that i get in my head are like movie scenes yeah you know of, what I mean? Totally. Like, oh, I, I'm picturing a Jason Bourne character uh, yeah, doing yeah, totally. something, there, you there, know? Yeah, there's there's like a musical device they're leveraging here. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but, you know, and they, somebody they paid does. a lot of <laughs> Yeah, they paid a lot of attention. And, Rob, I, I also was, was challenged with this because I think about how much attention to detail they paid to all the little nuances and the instrumentation and the setup. They didn't write hooks. There's no like there's no melodies, but they paid so much attention to everything else to that soundscape. So I'm kind of like Alan right now. I'm wavering a bit. I don't know where I'm falling on this. You know, let's just end the call now. So Rob doesn't talk us into (laughs) saying yes to this. (laughs) I think there are a decent amount of hooks and melodies, but but I know what you mean. And it's you can remain ambivalent. But I was sort of re-impressed by what it's doing sonically, the sonic alchemy that we talked about. Let's talk, um, before we just jump right into the songs, the last part I want to talk about is how it was received, right? So they basically did not make any waves in their native France, but quickly shot up the charts over in the UK. And part of that might have been because they also paired, as as you must have noticed, with an English language vocalist. Uh, Her name is Beth something. Beth Hirsch. Yeah, exactly. She's a British woman who was living in France as an au pair, and she wrote melodies over top of these duos' constructions. Anyway, they hit it big pretty much overnight in England and were kind of stars and started touring uh, really quickly after that. I thought I'd just read a couple choice. Because I think music like this leads people to want to come up with creative words to describe it, I thought some of the reviews of the time were really interesting. So let's go first to our, our buddy Robert Christgau of The Village Voice, which, by the way, if you guys aren't looking, just a little listener tip. if You should always go and look at Robert Christgau's reviews. He's really funny, I think. He writes these very short, like, three-sentence reviews of almost every record ever, like, since the 1960s, it seems like. And he's a notorious grumpy bastard 
Okay, so here's what he writes when this came out. Is his name Adam Laskowski? I was gonna say I'm I'm in love with him already. <laughs> he just I think he's a great he's a great reviewer. I just he's he's a classic. And getting a high mark from him is is definitely significant. And he gave this, I think, an A minus. He says, How oh how much I wanted to hate this moist piece of patisserie. This is what comes of taking mood music seriously. The comfy funk bass, space age sound effects, and moments of cool femme treacle are good-humored enough to win over even an old ager who remembers when lounge was actually worth hating. <laughs> That's awesome. Is he still alive, and can we interview him for this? Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's still around, and maybe even writing reviews. Okay, let's That's go. That's so funny. It yeah. takes lounge. Yeah, man. Yeah. Lounge music and does something with it. Wow. All right. Let's go over across the pond to our friends at Pitchfork, the hated Pitchfork. This is a review at the time. Also a pretty good review. Air is the perfect background music for minimalist architecture design, or shagging up against a tree in a field of sunflowers, or waiting in line for Space Mountain, or drinking gin upstairs in a 747 circa 1974, or 60s Swedish industrial documentaries. <laughs> All those things sound pretty good. I agree. And uh, Not waiting for Space Mountain, but... The rest and, of it's pretty good. And the last, the last thought I thought I'd read is from the, the NME, the New Music Express in London, big paper there. It says, Moon Safari is nominally techno, but a kind of techno that's closer in spirit to Brian Wilson and Debussy than to the Chemical Brothers. And I think that overall, that, that, that says a lot about what I'm feeling about this record right now, that it took a genre and made something, made, made something a bit new out of it, made something unexpected out of it and i think it's it's kind of stands to the test of time oh i should mention too you guys were mentioning the cinematic nature of their music totally agree some of this stuff sounds like soundtrack music i've always had a soft spot for soundtrack music mm-hmm. i think i've mentioned Layla schifrin before on this podcast but he's really yeah, one of my all-time yeah. favorites he's an argentinian piano player and composer who's most famous for having written the mission impossible theme but his whole catalog is just terrific of, of themes and, and jazz music and I like a lot of that stuff. Anyway, their very next record, they did the soundtrack for a Sofia Coppola movie called The Virgin Suicides. And that record is also great, but it is it is purposefully a soundtrack to a film. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's break up this ambivalence by getting right into the specifics <laughs> of the first track. We already heard a little piece of La Femme d'Argent, which roughly translates as the, the money girl or the silver woman more directly. Hey, do you think they ripped off Hollow Notes, Rich Girl? Is this a, a cover of that? No. <laughs> Let's play a different section of this opening track. Adam, I'll kick it to you. Although now I feel challenged to try to fit the lyrics of Rich Girl over this. I thought that it's a, it's excessively long in my mind because there's not a ton. There are some cool sections. I totally dig the Wurlitzer in there. I think there's a clavinet in there as well. 
piano breakdown's nice. There's a bunch of nice sections, but for me, and, and a theme that, that I might come to a couple of times here is that I feel like it just fails to take off. It's so close and it kind of continues to hover, which may have been the intent. Um, but yeah, it, it's a cool, it's a cool tune there. There's this kind of pornamento thing at around the six minute mark. Again, a nice sonic uh, part of the soundscape. So I dug the tune. Yeah, I thought the, I, I have heard this song before. I also felt, felt like it was a little bit too long. Like I actually laughed out loud to myself. There's a point like midway through the song where it starts to break down and it seems like a really logical end point. And then it <laughs> kicks right back in and I just like laughed and it just felt really amusing to me at the time. The um, rain comes back in at the four yeah. minute mark. And you're like, oh, this is it. This is the perfect spot. No, you don't. You're coming back in again. It's a great baseline, though. Like, it is, to me, that baseline is the my favorite part of the entire album. It's such a cool baseline. It almost reminded me a little bit of like what you'd hear in a, a Yola Tango song. Yeah, where, good call, good call. You know, kind of a seven minute probably a little bit too long. Um, I did the funniest part about this song. I came across as I was just doing a little bit of YouTube on this song. There was a hilarious video. It was called La Femme d'Argent extended 26 seamless minutes. And I was just like, why? Like, who would they looped it? So that it's, I think it's more than a loop. I think they kind of, they fused it together so that it didn't feel like it was ending, that it felt like, 26 continuous oh, okay but either you. way why you would need more of it i'm not see you know sure. see, I, I also enjoyed this song i agree with everything you guys said soundscapes and great bass line love the keyboards but like for me you know like around the seven minute mark is where i could just hear like rock drums and dave gilmore come in and like <laughs> i you know like i'm ready just for it to go to the next level Right. Yeah. Um, so That's where comfortably numb I, I mean, solo number the, two comes in. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> uh, we should try to overlay that as well. So we've got Rich Girl and a Pink Floyd solo. Let's see if we can do that. Challenge for the yeah, week. Let's see, let's see what we can do. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I think it's great mood music, um, and and I don't I don't mind the, you know, the the length. Uh, I, I feel like it justifies itself and it sort of, it gives me something to follow always. Yeah. I, I agree. I thought it justified the length. It, I mean, it's the longest track on the album and, but I think a lot happens in it dramatically speaking. Now this it's given the genre. It's not intended to be a short pop song clearly, sure, sure. but I think compared, I'm sort of comparing it to a lot of other stuff we've listened to. And also in my mind, what an album like this could have been, which is much longer songs most of the songs on this record are about four minutes long, which feels about right. This one is longer. I feel like it mostly justifies its length in terms of the drama and the ups and downs. You guys mentioned that breakdown at around four minutes. I think that's awesome. I love that rain sound. I find that very calming. I think it's great. One of the things they did here that specifically I noted is that, yeah, this is an organ through a guitar distortion pedal and then something called an MS-20 through a flanger. That's another synth. And he said, we were talking about bass. Oh, I, yeah, bass. the Korg MS-20. Yeah, I know about yeah. those. They're like yeah, semi-modular, I think. I'm going to look it up. You look it up, Phil. 
And on the bass, uh, he <laughs> apparently he's playing the Hofner, like a '60s Hofner, like Paul McCartney used. And, oh yeah, and the violin his, bass. Exactly, but he has his hand. He said like he wanted to make it extra crisp, so he had like his hand over the strings, so you could you couldn't get any like resonance. Muting it a little. Yeah, muting oh it a little yeah, bit. you can tell. I had a sense that it was a that had like the attack of a short scale bass, which I think those old Hoffners are, and then the semi acoustic part, semi hollow body, definitely gives it that like tubbiness. That yeah, that 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 checks out. And the the bass is active enough that it almost defines a melody. Now that I'm kind of running back through it again, it in my totally head. defines a melody. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's, yeah. it's it, totally it is, defined. Yeah. That's a great melody. I think it's the most memorable yeah. melody on the record. I, I would I would have to say that 100. And in my head. I've had this picture in my mind for 20 years now, but I o- I've always pictured snowboarding at night and just like carving up the slope like in the twilight while this is going on. Yes. In the, and it to me that just implies this kind of like never-ending loop. Or what's that thing they use with that you can do with like sound waves where it keeps sounding like it's ascending? I think it's called like a shepherd's loop. Oh yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It that, sounds that, like that's it's always crazy. This, by the way, yeah. Totally. It's like a weird uh, oral trick, but it sounds like it's always ascending, but it's, mm-hmm. but that's impossible, right? One of those things. Anyway, right. so to me, like the length of this song is totally appropriate for the vibe they're going for, partially for that reason, because I want to trance the F out. Let's move on to the next track and the first single off this album called Sexy Boy. Phil, what do you think, buddy? Go first. This was my least favorite song on the record. I, this doesn't make any sense to me compared to the other songs on the record, like Le Femme d'Argent or Talisman or some of the other ones we'll hit later. I, this sounds like a garbage song. I don't like garbage. <laughs> uh, y- yeah. Like yeah, the band let, garbage let, let's, or let's, just yeah, let's garbage? Let's move it along. I mean, who, does somebody like, do one of you guys like this song? <laughs> Oh, this song was this song sucked to me this felt like and I, I don't know the timelines of these bands or who was following who I know but like the Daft Punk connection to me this felt like a cheap kind of Daft Punky song and also I don't know what it's called if, if this is like the vocoder or the autotune or but that beginning kind of robot voice is so that cringy to thing. me yeah it is yeah. just and you mean we're that is also sexy boy no, there's something else think, in the I beginning. I think he means the bass, like the thing, the synth that's like doing oh, the bass line. Bow, 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 bow. Yeah. yeah, but it sounds like it's got a vocal. It's, like, it's a vocoder. To it. It's definitely a vocoder. Yeah. So yeah, that was the first of like a little too many of these little vocoder runs for me. Um, I also this is really weird, but 
All I could think about during this song being called Sexy Boy was if you ever watched WWF growing up, that guy Shawn Michaels. Yes. Sexy boy. (laughs) I'm not your boy toy. I couldn't believe there's another song called called Sexy Boy. <laughs> so Damn, I can't believe you you're really just busting this out. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? WWF was awesome. Yeah. There's got to be at least one or two WWF fans listening. No, sure. I, I watched <laughs> WWF when I was a kid. I just don't remember the... Why did it stick with me? Was yeah. it Rick Rude? Yeah. Who did you just say? Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels. Well, man. It's one half of the Rockers. Right. <laughs> with uh, Marty Jannetty. Listen, yeah. <laughs> well done, Rob. <laughs> yeah, so... I agree. This song, I don't like the song much either. It doesn't sound like almost anything else on the album. And yet it was their first single and the thing that rocketed them to platinum in the UK. It comes off a lot harder. It's more like dance music. I agree it feels more in that Daft Punk kind of mold. A couple interesting maybe tidbits, though, are that it's not a female voice. It's actually these two dudes warping their voice through vocoders and tape speed effects and just being weird with it. And I think this has a great example of if, if someone wants to know what that clavinet through a wah pedal sounds like, it if you get to like the part B of this song, that's what that sounds like. That's it could you could mistake it for a guitar, but it is a keyboard through a, a guitar wah pedal. I thought that as a transition, it was, I, I get the idea of putting a single worthy song like higher in the track listing, but because I think the first track was was relatively strong, going into this, it almost made me just want to check out entirely, you know, like anticipating, was, is the rest of the album going to be like this? It just felt like a transition out of like nice pillowy ambient music to something that felt a little bit, you know, over-engineered, but uh yeah. What are you gonna do? Yeah, this this <laughs> felt like this felt like the shitty version of the end credits of the Born Identity. Like <laughs> Born Identity has cool end credits. This would have been like the Scandinavian knockoff of Bjorn Identity and they play they play this and it's like, Oh, really? Okay. That's definitely a porn title. Right. Bjorn Identity. The Bjorn Identity. <laughs> <laughs> the, my only other note is that the synth pad they chose on this uh is it's in the background it's a it's a little grating at times and it just seems like I, i'm trying if you can't tell me what synthesizer it is I right exactly. it was the dx7035 <laughs> okay yeah the ms13 wait a minute the johnny 5000 i hear what you're saying and this this might have been this is probably one of the tracks that led them to call themselves sort of a space age carpenters that was that was something that came up a couple times but I, I agree it's not what I like about the band, but I, one of the reasons I think this 
record is an interesting one for us to talk about is because it really is out of all of our comfort zones. It's definitely, this is not our, like this is a classic not for us kind of music. Sure. But it was extremely popular at the time, and it's still the song they're most known for. So I just think that must be noted. This song's the song they're most known for? <laughs> yeah. Fuck me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you got to think about, it's like, you, think, think for a second. This is the discussion behind what we've been saying. But where are you going to play this music? Yeah, Sexy Boy, sure. you could play at a club. You can't play La Femme d'Argent at a club. That can only happen at a restaurant or in a, <laughs> in a tea garden or something. Possibly you know, in a right. car commercial. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I see what you mean. Or, you know, I could see one of those, like, Amsterdam coffee shops. You know, something Rock like that. But, yeah. They're really showing off their Euroness on this one, for sure. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's move on to what I actually consider the low light of the album. Kelly Watch the Stars. Here, buddy. I mean, yeah. Again, the vocoder, just too much, just way too much. Were the only words in the song "Kelly Watch the Stars" that just seemed a little bit repetitive? I I felt like it was a little bit of a throwaway track. Incidentally, though, I could also see this being one of their more, you know, not hit type songs. But it had a feeling of like this is probably something that the general public would like of their catalog more so than some of the other ones. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really have much of opinion on it other than it felt a little bit repetitive and so this, boring. Th- to me, it's another one where they're trying a little too hard for dance music and for Daft Punk stuff, you know, in that genre of music that I don't particularly care for. And it also interrupted the flow of the music. I, to me, this was the one track where I was just like totally sonically bored within its four minute runtime. And I think it's because they don't even really have that many layers or melodies to it, at least in Sexy Boy, which I found as a concept, maybe a little embarrassing or silly. There were still dynamics in the song and some different melodies and textures that kind of kept my ear interested. With this one, I felt like it was sort of one melody throughout and it wasn't that compelling uh, throughout. The thing, the thing that sort of bothered me about this song, especially sort of just like in the, the course of the record, uh, is that it's it's sort of like the third song that's using that like heavy sort of uh, vowely synth bass. And, and this track, I feel like, actually would just be much stronger if they had the bass player from track one just playing. It's probably a mixing a issue, good bass though. Line. Yeah, no, no, but I'm, I just wanted to say again that I think like a lot of what they did here was they'd have him playing bass, like pr- regular bass, like that Hoffner, or he, sure. I think he played some of it on a on a P bass also, through a guitar amp with a pick. I, I did clarify that in uh, some of the interviews. But then they'd have it that same <laughs> line, 
then they'd have that same line doubled by some keyboard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or multiple keyboards. And then that so, is the mean, question so of how not, they mix it. Not dissimilar, them. right? Like, this is a popular, like, Nashville thing, right? Like, they'll, they'll sort of, like, mute an acoustic guitar and double the bass line. And it gets that sort of, like, clicky, you know, mm-hmm. bass, bass thing. Now, this, is, this was the song. So I watched this one live on some uh, concert they were doing in this white room with, like, lights on the walls and stuff. It was very cool looking. And during this song, they pan across the stage enough for you to see... We'll, we'll do a little by the numbers thing. How many keyboards do you think these guys have on stage? I'll, I'll spoil it. We'll do it over the and under. Is, <laughs> the, dude, the number is 14. Whoa. These guys amongst. There's two of them still. Four, four people on stage. One of them was a drummer. So there's 14 keyboards between three guys uh, when they were doing this tune. But yeah, this, this tune for me was a little boring. I got really excited. The intro has a very cool chord pattern. It, it uh-huh. does a lot of there. these songs do. And then it kind of got into the repetition of Kelly Watch the Stars, and then it didn't didn't really go any go anywhere. But the one thing I did like upon multiple listens was the weird Halloween whistle instrument, whatever the synth end. that yeah. is. No, it's like right around the two fifteen mark, and it's totally you would picture it in a Halloween song. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what I was, yeah. I was thinking. Whatever, too. I got to find out whatever synth that is because I, I want one of those. Was it a theremin, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't think sound, so. But... It didn't sound wobbly enough to be a theremin. I though. agree. So it might, might have been some kind of like woodwind synth thing. Running running through another synth through a pedal. I will say, where, wherever we land on this, I either way, I really want to buy a synth now. It, like I, I've already been like close to the edge, but I, I think that's just a must have. I think yeah. I, I think a mini log is a really nice barrier to entry synth. You get the four. Is that the one with the the little panel? <laughs> yeah, it's got that the little off the top. Yeah, it's got a little it's panel. Like Twenty keys. It can do four okay. notes. You know, it's got like four note polyphony, but it also like just with a touch of a button, it'll stack up into like a mono synth. So that's cool. I'll just go Tom style and go right into a Nord. Yeah, cut the nonsense. I would go directly to the Moog grandmother. Yeah. It's going to cost you like eight, nine hundred bucks. And yeah. I, I just got to go get my dad's JX3P. Oh, yeah, you should. Get that over here. I, I had that for <laughs> like <a> old school. <laughs> I borrowed yes. it from him. Yes, that's right. It's great. You it, should totally go Why get didn't it. you write this album? Yeah. <laughs> Very disappointed we didn't get. Phil's version of air. Well, once the ad revenues kick in, we'll be able to have synthesizers for all. (laughs) Again, though, I just want to say, like, I agree. It makes you want to go out and buy a synthesizer and uh, a significant quantity of marijuana and have at it. But compared to, like, what that would sound like to what this album is, a lot of song structure and work went in. I think think that's what I appreciate about it. It's not dashed off. It's not a synth jam. It's not a noise soundscape. 
is quite the opposite. I think everything is very it's not, purposeful. It's not the New Deal where they're just jamming with synths <laughs> over a beat for <laughs> the New 73 deal. minutes. Oh my god, I haven't you heard remember that. those guys. Yeah, <laughs> they were in that like Disco Biscuits kind of. Yeah, yep. Continue. They were just three dudes, and they were just like, "We can rip. Let's just like just rip." Right. <laughs> By the way, I <laughs> resent the implication <laughs> that that don't we stop. would just get synths and get high and. <laughs> fucking around with him like i I don't know what you're trying to say (laughs) i didn't think it was an implication at all i thought it was quite direct (laughs) rob you make a point and i I mean i definitely think it's it's clear on some of these songs uh i I think i think it'll be a clearance in the other ones we talk about as well like as as we move on but yeah there's like arrangement here A, a lot of it i don't know what musical device it is exactly but like some of this has that like modal jazz kind of vibe, right? Like where, you know, they're in D minor, but a single note is sharp and they respect that in all places. So now you've got these weird chords that sort of just show up naturally. I just put some air quotes in there. Uh, you, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Uh, like songs that are in melodic minor are, are sort of like this, right? You get these these weird major chords. Um, and they, you know, Hotel California, right? It has these weird major chords, and they feel real triumphant, but also evil. And uh, you get a lot of that here, and that and that comes through careful planning. Agreed, agreed. And I'm just maybe it's unfair in the positive way, but I'm comparing it into my mind to what it could have been if I just messed around with synths with you guys, even if we were all great at keyboard. <laughs> I just don't think it would have been quite the same thing. I don't. I don't know if I'd have the patience to compile something this this broad. And like earlier, the reviewer compared them to Brian Wilson as an as an arranger. I mean, I think there's maybe that's a lofty comparison, but some high level of care and arrangement went in, and that's important to me. All right, let's 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 keep it clicking right along here to the next track on our list, Talisman, which is a great name for a song. This song was so unremarkable to me. I can't remember anything about it other than that I thought the bass was really good. I I thought the bass group again, like the bass is very consistently good in this. It's like I can see myself jamming along to this and kind of locking in but going for some shit. But I honestly do not remember anything else about the song other than that it had a good bass line. I just felt like it was a very unremarkable song. Oh, this, this, to me, this is almost like the Game of Thrones soundtrack. Like, this gives me like a Game of Thrones intro. Like, I feel like it sounds like a low key, you know, get ready for sex and murder. So, <laughs> this was actually my favorite. <laughs> they should have called this song Sex and Murder. That would have gone well with the Google, Google ad <laughs> campaign there. <laughs> Phil, was this the one that I was talking about where the Wurlitzer 
uh, I'm reading back through our text string. I, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like it's almost like uh, it's like oh, you can hear man. it. Like, like this one, I went back to and turned turned up my headphones loud enough that like you know to cause hearing damage. And the way that they miked, uh, it, it's two uh, two electric pianos, two two rollers going on at the same time on two separate tracks, and they're just so raw and you can hear the clicking and you can, I, you might even be able to hear the guy stepping on the sustain pedal <laughs> did something to me man and yeah, so i, I, I loved song, this tune i thought the bass was cool i thought the string arrangements were super tasty this is the one rob where i was saying this has got to be uh, abbey road uh, string yeah uh, like an actual string section right okay this isn't a, a synth but this yeah this was actually my my favorite track on the this, album this has a cool thing where it's got that synth it's, it's well first of all it's got the really sweet bass player right that's on like track one but then it also has the synth bass which is sort of like sticks out like a little awkwardly at first, but as the strings build up, it actually winds up sitting in the string arrangement, almost like a cello or something. But it's a yeah. synth, right? And but it's yep, like, yep. but it's sort of it's justified in being there all of a sudden. So we keep talking about that bass player. That's the main dude in the band. Who, uh, Godin, Nicholas Godin. There's two guys in the band. That dude plays bass all throughout the record, and. I see him, based on him being more present for a lot of the interviews and being quoted a lot more often, I think he's kind of like the main creative force behind the band. Uh, FYI on those two electric pianos, so there was good intel on that. It's a Rhodes and a Wurlitzer doubling each uh, other. Okay. okay. And they talked about how nice. not so easy it was to mix that together and get kind of both sounds and get the sound you were talking about. And, and not phasing, right? Because when you have two things with, with tremolo, you could get that weird overlap where it, it kind of they cancel each other out. Yeah. That's cool. And then the strings are a combo of live strings recorded at Abbey Road uh, Studios and this Selena string ensemble synth that they used. And it sounds like just with this whole record, it, it took a long time for them to record this. Like they started in their crappy apartment in Paris and eventually uh, after I think releasing a single or something, getting some kind of funding. They went over to Abbey Road and finished off some things. Like, it was kind of a long process of, of producing it. So um, this is the most cinematic track, I think. We've talked about it being soundtrack music the, the entire time. But to me, it's great. It's like a kind of a pair to that first track, with Femme d'Argent, which is what I like about Air Encapsulated. Thus, I like this one as well. Yeah, it made perfect sense that after tracks like this, they would go on to do that Virgin Suicides movie soundtrack because they're good at it. So, heck yeah. Oh, another interesting tidbit I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure because he uses two different basses on this album. He mentioned one was a P bass where he never changed the strings to give it even more of that like grimy feel and is using a pick. That James Jamerson syndrome. You, never you should only change strings. bass strings if they break or if you get a new <laughs> bass. <laughs> yes. Like straight up. And But the other one, I thought this was kind of interesting, like remnant of the sort of French scene that was going on there is that Hoffner, that 60s Hoffner, that he had to borrow from another band. And the drummer in that, they were called the Wee Wees, and the drummer in that band at the time was that guy Michel Gondry, who's now a famous film director. He did uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, and 
did a bunch of cool like music. He did the Daft Punk Around the World video. Total weirdo. Anyway, he was just hanging out with these dudes. No, he was the drummer in this band. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. He was but yeah, but it was, out. Yeah. but yeah, it's a part of this whole scene. So it was a it was a vibrant scene. I think also that band Phoenix. They're the only other yeah one of the only other French bands I know. Yeah, they got their start by like remixing one of these Air songs, and then Air invited them to come on tour with them, and that was like so they were hmm. kind of next generation, but they're connected with these guys too. All right, let's move it along to the last song we agreed we're going to talk about. Get ready for my terrible French pronunciation. This one is called <laughs> C'est Matin Le, which I believe translates to that morning. Let's listen. Could there be a more perfect song title? I mean, this is exactly <laughs> that horn. I mean, I'm picturing, right? I'm, I'm making the movie in my mind. I got the screenplay going already. I feel like this is the best waiting on hold music ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm like sitting on hold and I'm like, man, Your they call really, is important to yeah, us. Yeah, and I'm like, man, they really put some effort into this yeah. hold music. It's really good for hold music. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Definitely taking inspiration from easy listening. That which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. Because I think in my mind, you know, it's the most whimsical kind of tr- track. It's different from the other tracks. But I was thinking if, if everything else on this record was was you hurtling through space and time via some kind of galactic wormhole, then this felt like you finally arrived on the alien world and you're being greeted by a pleasant <laughs> delegation. Yeah, sitting sure, you down. sure, yeah, yeah. But they're all in 70s suits, and everything <laughs> is felt, and everything is red couches. So, and yeah. You know, something, Rob, we haven't talked on this directly, uh, so I'm just going to leap in head first. I think there's a pretty interesting through line, like, sonically here. Between this and Yoshimi battles the pink robots, right? I think there's a lot of like the sort of like rip co- synthesizer rip chord sounds, and I think this has a lot of like the major key synth sounds, and a lot of way the synth interacts with like um, the way the synth sort of interacts with the bass and the strings. I don't yeah. know. What are your thoughts on I guess. this? Like, what are you, what are your thoughts on the Yoshimi vibes here? I could see, I could definitely see that. It's it's funny because the first thing it made me think of when you said that was Tom's hatred for the Flaming Lips because he once saw them and instead of having the drummer play drums, they played a drum tape loop, and that turned Tom off for the rest of his life at that moment. And I don't, I just don't think Air would do that. But yeah, I think he would yes. stab their fans in the back. <laughs> but yes, I I totally agree that it's um, the track on there that's after. I think it's Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots Part Two the kind mm-hmm. of instrumental track that comes after the main sure. single. 
Yep. Maybe is a good touchstone for what you're talking about. Yeah, there's there's another one too that I'm thinking of. Also, with the there's a tuba on this track. A guest musician came in and did an actual tuba, and that made me think of the Beatles. Just you know that that level of uh, I don't know, like all you need is love or that era. I I guess if you're that, not the horn road, in you know, there is a could... tuba. Apparently, yeah. Wow. It's higher register, but it has a very interesting, very unique sound. It's very. Bar, 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 bar. <laughs> Can't describe <laughs> you, it any other you way. You nailed it. Yeah, you know I actually have it on in the background right now. You nailed Thank it. you. you Here's, I, have a, I have a quote from Nicholas Godin, the writer, that I think kind of maybe helps you know encapsulate. We've been talking about a lot of things that might encapsulate their way of thinking. But he says that while he was writing this, he was fantasizing about being at the Capitol Records building in L.A., not, not his tiny apartment in Paris. And he came away and said, you know, that's, that's one of the big lessons to take away about recording. If you fantasize about something hard enough, It'll pass through the cables and into the minds of people listening to the track. I'm pretty sure that's the secret. Are you familiar with the secret? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, if you just like think it, you can manifest yeah. untold riches. Yeah. So Oprah, if you're listening, well, not, please listen, deliver we don't need to have me a my dis- untold riches. We don't need, to, we don't need a, a deep discussion of the secret slash Scientology. I think that's the premise there as well, but. But he's got a point about what the recording process is like sure. and how yeah, you yeah. have to put yourself in a certain mind. How do you get a vibe on a tape without having that exact vibe happening in the sure. recording session? Uh, no, I think I think that's very true, right? It's easier to just record it that way than it is to recreate it any other way. Right. You're, you know, when we listen to Parliament, records come to mind for some reason because we've kind of been talking about them lately we i know we did the funkadelic record but i listened to some parliament records you're picturing that they're all hanging out at a house party having a grand old time you know like while the record i have no idea what the situation is but you're picturing that the vibe matches with what's actually happening in reality yeah sure sure but we all know from our recording experience and from practicality that most of the time when you're recording a record it's pretty it's not like what you're trying to achieve the vibe off the tape is not like the vibe on the tape and i just think sure, that's an, i just think sure. that's an interesting point to make that you have to kind of fantasize and visualize a little bit the song i was thinking of rob is called it's summertime i think the song uh, that we were just listening to that i won't pronounce reminds me a little bit of it's summertime by the flaming Got it, lips. from the flaming lips but i think i think there are some similarities in the way synthesizers are used here a lot of the ways synthesizers are used here, uh, and this and, and you know, Flaming Lips are sort of notorious thieves, uh, and this came out four years after Moon Safari, so it seems like the perfect amount of time for it to like have an impact on on what they were doing. Sure, I don't know if I call them notorious thieves, but I, I understand why you're why you're saying that. That's maybe a topic for another <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I got. I actually don't feel that strongly about it. I just thought they put it in their own documentary, so I'll call them. Yeah, didn't they have to like settle with somebody over the fight test song? Like, did they take that from somewhere? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I that's don't know. A, it's a we'll let our listeners Cat Stevens sort through that situation. I didn't know about that one, but okay. All, all that remains now, air is 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 whether or not we these four lauded gentlemen think that you must have your album listened to before one leaves this earth. Adam, what do you think? 
So I came into this evening and I already had planned out what I was going to say, which is I like this style. I like this album. I also like cheesesteaks. Do I think you need to eat a cheesesteak before you die? <sighs> Probably not. Whoa. I think you can get, Hold on a get by without it. Dude, this is... Hold on. I, I need to step in here. You <laughs> definitely have to eat a cheesesteak. And if you only eat one, that's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot who I was on the line with. However, <laughs> Rob, in his classic, his classic style, I believe has convinced me that as progenitors of, of a a new-ish musical style, down-tempo, and the attention to detail that these gentlemen have put into their craft, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, you need to hear this. Awesome. Alan. So I like this album. I will most likely listen to it again. And like I said, I think it fits into some other types of music that I listen to for a very specific purpose. I'm going to say no, and you almost swayed me. I'm, I'm sort of, I think, where you are, Adam, where I, I respect their contribution to this genre, and I do struggle with the fact that when there is a critical mass of, of critical reception, so to speak, it's hard to argue against that. Like, I, I'm not going to suggest that I have some insight that, like, all these people who think this is great don't have. Um, and again, I like it. I'll probably listen to it again. I don't view this as essential listening. I think I think music that tends to feel more like backgroundy, unless it has something else that's really special about it, whether it was like a smash commercial hit or there's some other angle that I think gives it some dispensation. <laughs> um, I just I, I don't think that you must listen to this before you die. So it, it's a no for me, but but definitely on the fence. Yeah. I'm going to go yes. I really enjoyed this record. I was coming into this conversation, I think, pretty up in the air. Uh, Rob, I had a similar experience, I think, to you. I knew this record, uh, you know, from the early 2000s. This definitely sort of brought back some memories, even though I had not really listened to this record that closely. And honestly, quite frankly, I still don't know how closely I've listened to it. But I did think it, it I, I like mood music. I think there isn't enough mood music. There isn't enough good mood music. Um, so for the same reasons that I like cinematic orchestra, uh, yeah, I like this. And yeah, I think you should check this out. I think this is one of a thousand records. You're in, you're in fair shape. Awesome. I'm pretty happy with how this all went down. Yeah, it's a yes for me. And I, I listen, I started the week not sure how I'd feel about it, knowing that I had had some interest and enjoyment of this record in the past, but wondering if it would stand up to a close listen. And one of the great things, again, about this podcast experience has is, is experiences like this, where I, I like it more now that I've dove deeper into the lore behind it, what gear was used. It's, it really is a gear obsessives paradise, Googling about the making of this record, just... Just throwing that out there again. But I think one of the things that really centers it for me, and they call this genre a lot of things. I've heard it called lounge core. You know, <laughs> genre naming is inherently hilarious, I'd say. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. But but I think one of the things that really makes it good for me, because I've I've often been wondering, as, as us rockers often are, is like, what's going on with electronic music? Why is it so darn popular? How come I don't understand it? What's going? What are the kids doing these days? No, this to me, this is a, a window into some of what's happening 
where you're just looking at things as, as textures and building textures on top of each other because you're anchoring in melody and perhaps most importantly because you're starting with the premise of humans playing instruments. That is the foundation for all these songs and then you layer a bunch of really cool sonic alchemy, I know we've said that term a couple times, on top of it and I think you make something that's, that's really great and really vibey. I will definitely listen to it again and I absolutely think it's worth listening to. Cool. So, Air, you're on the list, baby. Babies. Le- les babies. Les babies. Oui, oui. Oui, oui. And uh, you can tell all of us took Spanish in high school. Right. <laughs> and uh, now I believe all that remains is for us to pick next week's record. Tom is not here today. Uh, the, the aforementioned octopus uh, might have had a hand in that, uh, his undoing over there in the in the basement but um we do have um a crystal ball like you know panopticon that's going to get us over to that albinator this time hang on i i gotta google panopticon if that is not the name of your next band you're a monster (laughs) (laughs) ladies and gentlemen panopticon it does sound like a lounge core type of band right yes that's the guys from air would get in on that or it or a transformer (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go two, ahead. Two revenue streams. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> let's go ahead and spin that wheel and go for it. And next week, we shall be listening to Rage Against the Machines debut album, Rage Against the Machine. Oh, snap. Oh, yes. Snap. Do we even have to have the episode? Like, right. Can Just we everybody vote now? It's like when you like test out of a certain like class or subject. Do they just test out of our criteria? You're saying four white guys in their forties like Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> this this is the first one. Yeah, sure. Wait, Adam's not forty yet, right? Me, I'm forty one, man. Oh shit! All right. Yeah. I guess we are in our forties. Man, that like, sealed the deal for you. Oh god! Right. Really, yeah. I was hoping it's that true. Adam was still bringing down the curve a little bit. Okay. Well, it's going to be a very different... And the, the vibe of the week in my ears is going to be quite different. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, much different. But it'll be a fun one, I think, to dive into that record. Definitely a seminal record. And I look forward to that discussion with you all. Do you think that we had our finger on the pulse of French house lounge core, dear audience? Or do you think we were 100% wrong in particular on which gear they used and what implements they used to pluck that gear, please. Or what WWF superstars <laughs> we screwed up the references on, please. All of it, all of it. Please, please, please type us out a message. Ravishing Rick Rude is actually listening to this podcast. He's, He's pissed. <laughs> How could you not mention me yet? Yeah, definitely a possibility. Okay, if you want to shoot us over an email with any of your thoughts, concerns, or love letters. Our email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's 1001, the number, albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next week, I have been Rob. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh.
Dig it, dig it, hot tomatoes. Dig it, dig it, hot tomatoes. Dig it, dig it.